So I would invite you to turn to Exodus 1 and 2 um, as we look, really, in, in a sense, picking up after the events of the life of Joseph. So we're kind of rolling into the, into the next unfolding of God's revelation about Himself and, and His acts in the Old Testament. Um, also, by the way, tonight is a little different. As you know, that the rain has kept some folks in. I'm glad y'all are here, but I know even up in the northern part of the county, things are even a little more pronounced maybe with the water on the roads. And, and Miss Dawn is staying at home tonight for her safety. We certainly understand that. Um, and I thought that we would just go straight into the lesson because I don't think anyone wants me leading worship. So leading music anyway. We'll, we'll certainly worship God through studying His Word. Genesis closed after a long emphasis on the life and the family of Joseph. Does everybody have a paper, by the way? There are some in the back and in the front. Anybody needs one? Ben, yep, Ben will grab you one. A few folks, a few folks would. Exodus opens, um, and a new day is afoot. A new day has, has dawned. There are new challenges, uh, new needs, even a new government, a new opportunity for God to display His glory. We get to see a picture of what it looks like for God's people to no longer be favored by the rulers in authority over them. So if you remember from Ezra and Nehemiah, sometimes in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people of God were in good favor. Sometimes they were not. Darius treated them one way. Cyrus treated them another way. Um, and so the same thing is happening here. Remember, Joseph was able to bless his family because the Pharaoh was kind to him. And of course, Exodus opens in a different way. Um, it says in verse 8, if you look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, this is the note. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're watching a movie, you know that something bad is getting ready to happen when the music changes, Right? Even before the bad thing happens, you know, they, they bring out the cellos, right? And everything gets kind of somber. It says here in verse 8, as the note changes, right? Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So, in other words, change of scenery, change of tune. And I've entitled that little section, The Times They Are A-Changing. Bob Dylan's saying, and you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times... They are a-changing. Uh, for the people of Israel, the times were a-changing. They needed to discover what it looked like to trust God when their former source of security was gone. In other words, when the king over you is kind to you, the danger is that you get comfortable. The danger for the people of God during the times when the politicians who pass laws that we all like, when they're in, in control, I suppose... You can get to feel a little comfortable. And then things change and you get to feel a little uncomfortable maybe from, from time to time. And it says this, of course, in verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Here's what we learn. Our hope should never be placed in the political situations we are in or in the ones that we can manufacture. God's intention for Joseph was to do a certain work during a certain time. And so God, in His sovereignty, raised up a Pharaoh who was kind to Joseph. Why? Not because that was where Joseph's hope was supposed to be in, 
but so that God could accomplish his plan in that moment. Um, God did that work, but the point was not for Joseph. The, I'm sorry, the point was not Joseph, and the point was not the leaders who made it possible. Um, and it says, uh, note, note how brief this phrase is, and Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. Let's just read the first few verses, the first eight, eight or nine verses. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, uh, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers, and all that generation. It seems a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? Like, you mean we spent all those chapters in Genesis about Joseph's life? Every detail about sending the brothers back with, with uh, you know, money in their bags, and they get tricked, and then they come back, and all these details about who Joseph gets sold to. And remember, time really slowed down. Some people in Genesis get one verse for their whole life, and other people, like Joseph, get chapters and chapters and chapters. You mean that all of that, it just comes to an end here in, G in Exodus chapter 1? Where basically the summary is, and Joseph died, and all his brothers and that's just the end of that story. That's interesting. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was, was filled with them. So we should pause here when we see this. When we see how this guy, that Joseph, we got, we got very close to him, right? We studied his life. We followed with him. We, we walked through the highs and the lows. And then suddenly, Joseph died. And so did all his brothers. And that's the end of the story. The angst we read about in Joseph's life, all the difficult days, the strife, the highs and lows, all of it, by the way, it came to, end. It came to an end one day. And so will our lives. Here's what we learn. God buries the worker and continues the work. The point is not us. The point is not our lives. The point is not the things that we think are important. The point is not our agenda. God's going to bury us one day. And he's still going to be here, and he's going to continue the work. So, Joseph, who got all these chapters, all these chapters in Genesis, guess what? His life ended too one day. And God was still there. God was still faithful. The point was never Joseph. The point is never the Bible characters. And the point is not you and I. The point is the God who, wrote, who writes the play and gets his own glory. Um, this is a lesson in humility. One day we will die, and God will still be good. So, hope you didn't come to church for some encouragement tonight. Because we're, we're not starting off on a very encouraging note. But it's true, right? I'm here to tell you what's true, not just what'll sell. All right. So, here's what we learn. Um, if you look in verse 7, I actually don't have this. Look, I've been negligent. I didn't write this point down, but I need to draw your attention to it in, in verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. Right, this is a but sentence. Okay, so Joseph, the guy that we've come to know and love, the guy who we've seen God move through, he died. But that doesn't mean God has stopped. It says, but, even though Joseph died, but the people of God were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, this is a genuine question. This isn't rhetorical. I'm going to ask you to answer this question. Why is that important? Verse 7. Anybody want to take a stab at that? 
what it says in verse 7. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was, was filled with them. Exactly. God is still being faithful to his promise to Abraham. Remember what he promised him in, in Genesis 12? I will make of you a great nation. Your people will... Basically what God is saying is that you will spread. Your offspring will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Right? Your people will spread and I'll get more glory. He's, he hasn't forgotten his promise. Yeah, Joseph's dead. All his brothers have died. That chapter is closed, but God is still who he is. He's still continuing. He's still making good on his promises. And friends, today what we can learn is that God still intends to do that through the Great Commission. How is God filling the earth with his glory now? How is God creating a, a nation? How is God creating a people? By doing it through conversions. Through people coming to know Jesus Christ. What God promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 is not happening through some kind of family bloodline anymore. It's happening through people repenting of their sins and coming to know Jesus. And so friends, I have good news for you today. God is still going to be faithful to His promises here at Trenton Baptist Church to bring people to saving faith here because it's still His plan to glorify Himself. And so why don't we just get after it? Telling, other, telling others about the gospel. Why don't we put our hand to the plow and, and, and expecting God to make good on His promises to fill the world with His glory by making new believers. But, verse 8, there are some tough things happening. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. So what God promised to the people of Israel is a problem to Egypt, right? The more the people of Israel grow, the more God is coming good on his promises. But the more they grow, the more of a political problem they are to Egypt, right? Because they could, they could get... Strong, and maybe they could rebel against us, and that wouldn't be good. So as God is making good on His promises, that's seen as a threat to the enemy of God, uh, which are these, uh, these bad pharaohs. So, uh, by the way, I need to take a step back and mention something. The scene that the book of Genesis sets is a really black and white picture between good and evil. Okay? The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Okay? And so we're seeing that play out. Who is the seed of the woman, right? In other words, those who know God and fear God. And who is the seed of the serpent? We see this show up even in the New Testament. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman. Satan, seed of the serpent, right? He's tempting Jesus. All this, all this kind of stuff. Who, so as we look through the Bible, we're always asking the question, is this person the seed of the woman? Or is this person the seed of the serpent? Like which side are they on? There's really not much, there's really not much middle ground. So that's what's happening here. It, Egypt is kind of seen as the opponents of God. And God judges them, right? We know what happens when the waters close around them, right? And all their horses and men and chariots drown. Okay, um, let's see. Uh, let's just keep reading. Um, verse 11. Therefore they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. 
They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. So persecution, oppression, trouble, obstacles doesn't stop God's plan from coming through. It seems like the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more trouble they experienced, the more God seemed to come true, come good on his, make good on His promises. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So, question. A king who desires to kill the children. Is that the seed of the woman or is that the seed of the serpent? Not much gray area, is there? So, the king of Egypt here, the Pharaoh, is seen as the seed of the serpent. But the Hebrew midwives are seen as, as God-fearers because they are not going to follow the wicked order of the Egyptian king of the Pharaoh. So, I may have gotten ahead of myself. Let's, let's look here. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Even the persecution of Pharaoh cannot stop God's master plan from continuing. And we talked about the promise to Abraham on that little bullet. Look down at the next little dash. Pharaoh used evil means to accomplish his ends. He sought to snuff out Egyptian life in the cradle. You know what's interesting here? You do a little study. I got a little footnote there. Susan Wise Bauer, not sure who she is, but she wrote a book called A History of the Ancient World and has noted that this pharaoh, whoever he was, she knows which one he is, but this pharaoh had a serpent on his crown. Is he the seed of the woman or is he the seed of the serpent? Isn't it just interesting how, historic, how historical irony seems to play out that this pharaoh, which we know because of what we believe about God, we know he's the seed of the serpent, right? He's not on God's team. He actually, in the, in the most rich historical irony that you could possibly imagine, this pharaoh decided it was a good idea to have a little figurine or a, or a stamp of a serpent on his crown as if there was any question what team he was on. Uh, it's a fitting symbol. Um, I will say, let's see, uh, James Hamilton has said this, the seed of the serpent commands the Hebrew midwives to murder the male seed of the woman, but God frustrates this plan by placing one particular seed of the woman in Pharaoh's own house. Who is that? Moses. 
he puts the seed of the woman in Pharaoh's own house and undoes the plan of the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the enemy. Um, let's see, where are we at? Pharaoh used evil means to accomplish his ends. Um, this evil was put, was put to a stop by those who had the power to stop it, namely the midwives. Now, the Bible says that the midwives feared God. Okay, that's an interesting phrase because we know that usually in the Old Testament, God-fearers are those who believe in God, who, who know Him. It's a little unclear what this means, whether these midwives actually knew and worshipped Yahweh, but what we do know is that they certainly feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And, and they show that with actually risking their own lives and occupations so this speaks to their, to their uh, uh, character. Their fear of God is, e is evidenced by their protection of innocent life. They were, they were, whatever religion they were, they were at least religious in this sense, that they knew that life is valuable. So whether the fear of God they had was a believing, saving knowledge of God, or whether it was just that they, they had seen Yahweh move and they wanted to follow Him more than Pharaoh, we cannot know. But what we do know is that Scripture doesn't rebuke them for disobeying this unjust edict. Um, so God dealt well with the midwives. Uh, it's unclear whether the midwives lied when they said that the Hebrew women just give birth really quickly. That could have been true, right, in God's sovereignty. He could have allowed these women to give birth quickly, but whatever the case may be, God dealt well with them because of how they did not carry out the unjust, evil order of the seed of the serpent. Um, it's important now for me to say something that I didn't mention this morning in my sermon. How were people saved in the Old Testament? You know, uh, I, I, I intended to answer that question a little more directly. Um, I remember asking this question youth group growing up, and, you know, honestly, I, I don't know that I think it was kind of a difficult question to answer. Um, and, and honestly, I was probably well through my undergraduate, you know, studies in, in Bible before I really, I really felt like I had a solid answer to this question. And, 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 it's this, and it's this. This is what I believe the Bible teaches. Salvation has always been by faith. It's not like in the Old Testament there was a ladder to climb. And in the New Testament, God decided to be gracious. Okay. He's the same God. Now, of course, history's unfolding. Jesus had to come. Here's, what, here's how people were saved in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Jesus hadn't come yet, but He had been promised. They knew that a Savior was coming. And so they looked ahead toward the Savior. They trusted in Yahweh. They trusted in His commandments. They trusted in what He had said. And they, and they, they tried their best to follow the law to evidence their faith that, yes, God, one day, one day you're going to send a true and better Adam. One day you're going to send a true and better Moses. One day you're going to send a true and better Joseph. We, we haven't seen him yet, but we believe you. They were saved in a faith that looked forward toward Jesus. We are saved in a faith that looks backward and reflects on Jesus. So we are certainly, in a sense, favored because we're able to have, we're able to have both testaments to teach us who this Jesus is they were accountable for what they knew at the time, right? History is unfolding. God's revelation is unfolding. So I just wanted to answer that question that I felt like maybe I didn't, that I, that I left hanging this morning uh, about how God 
saved people in the Old Testament. It's always been by faith. Salvation by grace through faith, as we understand from Ephesians uh, chapter 2. All right, here's the last little, here's the last section. Or, no, no, it's the preacher's last section, which means the next to last section. <laughs> a leader is born and is prepared by God. This is chapter 2. Um, you know, when we don't have to sing up front, I can just get to preach longer. That's how, <laughs> that's how this thing works. All right, let's see. Now, a man from the house, this is in chapter 2, verse 1. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. His people aren't named. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. But she, uh, she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women uh, walked, beside, walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and went and, her servant, uh, and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw a child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse this child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. And the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. And he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. So, if you need a picture of how it's not about the Bible characters and it's not about us, notice that Moses' parents aren't even named. It's just a Levite man and a Levite woman that God uses for this purpose to, to raise up this son who's going to be a great leader of the Israelite people. And so we don't have to worry about being somebodies. It's okay to be nobodies because the Bible frequently, the Bible most often uses nobodies. Now, a man from the house of Levi took as his wife a Levite woman. That's all we know about his parents, pretty much. That Moses is, is, that Moses is born to unknown Levite parents is a parable of God's usual means of bringing glory to himself. God desires to bring glory to himself through the weakness of people. God doesn't need a strong person to make himself look glorious. God usually uses weak people. God miraculously provides for Moses. Again, he does so through those who are in power. Uh, Moses grows up. Things, things uh, grow up uh, or things progress quickly in chapter 2. Chapter 2 covers a lot of his early life. Look in verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, that's, that's all we get, right? Time just really sped up there. That's all we get for maybe the first 20 years of his life or so. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, right? So he, somehow he knows that he's a Hebrew. He's, self, he's, he's self-consciously aware about this. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that. 
And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So there's a little bit of tribalism. You, you mess with my people, I'm going to kill you, right? One day, he grew up, he saw something bad happen, and he, uh, he, he, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, fighting. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he said, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? And so he's found out. Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. So, Moses, we see, is a broken person. He Here, he's seen as a murderer. He is a picture of what it looks like to have a sense of justice that gets twisted. Remember, we talked about anger a few weeks ago. It's a sense of justice. It's good. It's in us from God. Sometimes it gets twisted and we, we do bad things. In this case, it leads to murder. This is no surprise to us, as we learned this morning. Jesus himself says that murder and wrath and anger and hatred are the same thing as murder in our hearts, right? So the knowledge of his sin causes him to run, causes Moses to run. Moses experiences a guilt and the consequences similar to the brothers of Joseph, right? His, his brothers have this guilt carried with them their whole life. Moses has guilt. He has, he has to run away. But there's a little redeeming picture here in the life of Moses. If you look at in uh, verse 16, so now he's with the Midianites. He's, went, he's, he's gone. He's fled into the land of Midian where maybe there can be safety. But it's interesting. You're running away from uh, the fire and into the frying pan in one sense because the Midianites are not God-fearers either. They're pagans. Now the priest of Midian, okay, so this is a priest of a false god, right? This priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them. So now here's this sense of justice, right? Sense of justice that God has put in Moses, and he uses it the right way. Last time he used it the wrong way. He killed somebody, but now this time, maybe there's a little bit of redemption. When he came home to their father, Ruel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon? When they came home, he asked, how is it you come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned, groaned. Did my mic just go out? Wow, I just put new batteries in it. Wow, that's interesting. Can y'all hear me okay? Well, they won't be able to on the... Ben would... Yeah. All right, how's that? Is it coming through? 
mostly. I'll just do like this. I need, I need to get one of those, I need to get one of those sweat cloths. I can just preach like this and wipe my forehead. <laughs> How's that? Hopefully that's coming through for the people online. So, uh, I was reading the Bible. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry and rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. With Isaac and with Jacob, God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Okay? Very, very interesting. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. Here, we see this under that little passage, verses 16 and 17. Moses sees some redemption. He rightly expresses his sense of justice by protecting the helpless. He protected these helpless women from being, uh, you know, done wrong by these other shepherds out there in the field. God provides for Moses again, but this time through some unconventional means. He is taken in by a pagan priest and, and becomes married to his daughter. It's probably not the pattern we would want to follow, but God redeems it. God uses it. Judgments are not explicitly made here about this, but we are together. We are to, to, to assume, we're together, that this is a strange part of God's providence that is more descriptive than prescriptive. You understand what I mean there? It's describing what happened. It's not prescribing that we ought to go do the same thing. That we ought to go, you know, marry people who worship foreign gods. It's just saying, this is what happened in Moses' life. This is not necessarily what you ought to go do. Okay, so it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Moses still needs to encounter the living God. He still needs development to be the leader that God will make him into be. And if you know what happens in Exodus 3, he meets the living God at the burning bush. So God is setting him up, right? God is preparing this man. He's broken, he's not perfect, but God is getting his man ready. Here's the last word. During those many days, the people of Israel groaned and cried out for help. While we shouldn't make this the entire point of this section, it's important to note the picture of God, the picture that God is conveying through Israel's slavery. Their physical slavery, right? Their actual slavery to a real slave master is a picture of what Jesus does for us in the gospel. We were enslaved to sin, and God gave us an exodus out of that slavery. That's the picture of the book of Exodus, right? A people are enslaved, and God gets them out. He takes them over into the promised land. Same thing is true of us. We were enslaved in a bad land by our sin, and God, through Jesus Christ, the true and better Moses, God gives us an exodus out of our enslaved, in chains condition. Here's the last word. And God heard their groanings. And God remembered, look at the verbs, God heard, God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This reminds us that God is not just a passive observer of human events. They play to His purposes, and they will be used by Him. He is near. How do we know that? Because He hears. He is faithful. How do we know that? Because He remembers His promises. He's compassionate. How do we know that? Because he saw his people where they were, and he's intentional. He's going to use it 
for his purposes. How do we know that? Because God knew. God knew the situation that his people were in, and he knew what he needed to do for them. I think that's enough for us to give God praise tonight. I hope that you will, gonna, that you will know that you will go home and remember that God remembers, he hears, he sees, and he knows no matter what you walk through today or this week. Would you pray with me? And we'll be closed. God, thank you that we can come and gather on even such a strange night as this when the weather is bad. We pray that you would keep all those in the community around us, all those certainly in our church, safe uh, during this weather. We thank you for the, for the encouraging report uh, of Mr. Carl. We thank you that, things, that the news was not any worse than it is. We thank you that you seem to uh, be preserving him. We pray that you would just um, encourage uh, Miss Nancy and Miss Jane and give them everything that they need uh, during this time. Uh, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we were brought out of the land of slavery to a land of freedom. Lord, help us to live as if that's true. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen, friends. Have a great night.